This is Matthew, the sixth chapter, and we're reading together verses 7 through 15 this morning. Our Lord Jesus says to us, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Good morning. We're in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the verses that were just read. Um, Before we do that, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll study and hopefully Christ will speak to us deeply and draw our affections into the gospel more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this privilege to be able to actually come to you and talk to you. That's a privilege only given to us by the blood of Christ. So even the fact that we get to pray before we look at your word is is grace. And as we study a text last week and this week about prayer, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our life that causes us to become people of prayer, causes us to become prayer warriors, causes us to know that every situation in life, whether we're entering, whether we're in the midst of it, or as we're leaving a situation, is to be governed by prayer, is to be sought after for help by prayer. There is no time where we can white-knuckle it. But prayer must be central in everything. Lord, press that reality into our lives by any means possible. Help us to be dependent upon you. Be with us now, God. Send your spirit in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever we go to um, my parents' house, one of the favorite things that um, my girls get to do, they have, I don't even know what they're called, they have these little wooden kind of things where if you open it up, there's another one, and you open it up, there's another one, you open it up, and finally you get down to the little small one, which my five-year-old steals. Um, so anyway, that's, that's basically what's going on here for us. Um, we, we have the scriptures, and then we're opening it up, and then we have the New Testament, and then we open it up and we have the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the same eye gospels. Um, and then we open it up and we have Matthew written to the Jews. And we open up Matthew and we get even into the Sermon on the Mount. And then as we open up the Sermon on the Mount, we get into Matthew 6, 1 through 18, where Jesus is talking about three acts of piety 
cautionary acts of piety where we're, we're supposed to um, we're supposed to be people that give. We're supposed to be people that pray. We're supposed to be people that fast. But when we do those things, um, we need to be cautious so that we're not trying to take the glory for ourselves. And there's three things that he does in Matthew six, one through 18. Um, but on the second one, which is prayer, uh, he doesn't just kind of talk about those uh, j- about prayer like he does giving and fasting, but he actually gives us a little illustration. And you see that um, in verses 7 through 15. Um, 5 through 6 is the, is the caution on prayer and not being a hypocrite as you pray. But then, unlike giving and fasting, prayer, he, he gives us a little explanation, or if you will, a little illustration of how to pray. Not what to pray, but how to pray. And so we see here, as we continue opening up the little dolls, that we're down into the model prayer, which is in, in verses 9 through 13. And so what we did last week um, is 1 through 18, we talked about that second cautionary act of piety, which is prayer, which must be done, um, not for our glory, but for Christ's. And, and we also saw that it's not prohibiting public prayers because we pray in church. Um, and then we went into the Lord's the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And there's seven elements of prayer that I want us to see. Um, and we only did the first two. Now, just a couple things I want, to, I want you to see really fast before we go into these last five. If you would look at the model prayer with me, which is a 9 through 13. And what I want you to notice is um, if, if we look at the content of our own prayers, maybe the vast majority of the time, Dear Jesus, thank you for something. Laundry list of needs. We just kind of, that's the way it is. If, if we pray, right? If we pray, that's, that's how it is. It's usually, dear Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your cross. I have a lot of needs. Um, but if you would look at this with me, I just want to let you see at least the, the two part breakdown before we get into the seven part breakdown, um, of, of the model prayer. You'll notice that nine and 10 are all about God, our father. In heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He hasn't, we haven't seen any kind of our need things yet. So what I want you to kind of think about here as we're, as we're looking at the seven elements of prayer is this. Um, Jesus is telling us how to pray, not what to pray. So what he wants you to do is whenever it's time for you to pray, which should be often, it should be spontaneous, and it should be scheduled. It should be both. There doesn't need to be a, a feel of legalism for you to have scheduled prayer. That's fine, but there should also be spontaneity in prayer. It should be that every moment we're going into is prayer. There, one, of my, one of my children's uh, videos, uh, wrongly, says, well, what do you do once you've done everything you can possibly do to try to make a situation right? Pray. No. <laughs> it's not like I'm going to do everything I can, and if I can't do anything, then God, you can kind of... It's not, no, it's going in, in the midst, out... Everything in our life is governed with prayer. And you will see here that the very beginning is about God. And then we go into our needs, which we can see in 11, 12 and 13. Um, So there is room for us to have our own needs. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we forgive, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you can see that there's, there's a big breakdown in the very beginning where we talk about God. And then we talk about ourselves. Now... 
as I said, this is an outline for us. This is how to pray, not what to pray. So when you have your times of prayer, it's not to just be that, oh, it's time for me to pray. So I'm going to go to this, memorize it. And this is how I'm going to pray because it's pray then like this. Our Father, this is an outline. So what I want you to do is this, okay? As we're going through these seven things, I want you to just think through how you can, the way God's wired you, the way the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, how you can, in your prayer life, incorporate these seven things. Um, the, the structure of them, the order of them, is really, it's not necessarily like you have to go in this order. You don't have to say, okay, the first thing God wants me to do is call Him Father. So, Father, Daddy, Abba, I love you so much, God, my Father. Okay, what's next? In heaven, okay. Um, you're in heaven, you're distant, you're far, you're, you're close to me like Daddy, but it, it, that's not kind of, it's not so legalistic like that. This is a, this is a how to pray. These are seven things. So I'm even cautionary, I'm, I'm nervous about after we go through each one saying, and this is how it should sound when you do it. Because I don't, I just think that you'll do that rather than the way the Holy Spirit's leading you in your prayer and the way you are in your walk, um, do it yourself. So what I want to do here is I'm going to give you these seven things. And as you pray, I just want you to, to maybe in the first, if you're not a prayer, if you don't pray a lot, um, maybe have a little list in front of you of these seven things so you can kind of move through the outline mentally as you look at them and, and use that, not in a legalistic sense by any means, but you should have that down eventually where you just start praying in this the way that he's told us to pray and it's, it's from your heart. It's not rote. It's not memorized. It's, that's, that's the goal. And so um, the first two that we did last week, we just did the first two, which were um, all in verse 9. We said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm sorry, we didn't even get that far. We just did our Father in, in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's all we did last week for the first two. And what I wanted you to see in those first two things was this amazing juxtaposition or putting together of, of two kind of contrasting ideas, which is our Father, which, remember, this book is written to Jews, um, and they just called God Yahweh. Or they really wouldn't even say that name. They would say Adonai. Um, they, had, they had high words. And so Jesus is speaking to these, to these guys and these, these Jews, and he's saying, listen, God is your Father. You, you, you don't just have to come with lofty titles. He's your father. So what Jesus is wanting to do is highlight in, in the words, our father, what we call the eminence, the closeness, the, the, the intimacy that we have with God. And then after that, right after our father um, juxtaposed to that is in heaven, hallowed be your name, as he, he highlights the transcendence, the majesty, the vastness, the greatness, the holiness of God and much and today in 21st century we, we we realize that more than likely the first part is pretty highlighted but maybe not the second part so in that first two things we can already see this amazing thing where God is our Father He's deep He's intimate He's close He's with us but also in the second part which is um, in heaven hallowed be your name where the second point we had was this as we pray we are we are to acknowledge his transcendence and his holiness when we say hallowed be your name so this as we say hallowed be your name we're not saying that you're becoming more glory instead we're recognizing that he already is glorious and that we're wanting to treat his name as glorious as his people um hallowed be your name and so we're seeing that he's great and he's vast and he's holy and as we're seeing that he's holy we're also seeing that we're sinful 
And we're seeing our utter need for him. So that's the first two things that we saw last week. And now we're going to go into the next five. And I'm hoping, listen, I'm hoping that you're going to maybe keep a little outline with these. And you're going to use this in your prayer time. Because as I have conversations with people um, over and over, most of the words that I hear as they describe is, I don't pray a lot. It's, it's very minimal. It's rote. I feel guilty because I don't pray enough. Um, and what I want you to have and what we all want in our lives is that our prayer life, as we describe it, would be vibrant, full, intimate, deep, passion. Um, and I'm, I'm praying that God would use this in your life to, to have that in your life. So the second one is, I'm sorry, the third. Here we are. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. That's the next phrase. And so here's the third thing I want you to, to see in a prayer is, in the, from the phrase, your kingdom come in verse 10 is this, that we would pray for his kingdom to come and that we would pray for us to work for the advancement of it. So I know I didn't put that little phrase in there, but that's basically what I mean is that we would pray for his kingdom to come, just like he says, your kingdom come. But also as we're praying for his kingdom to come, we have to realize um, that we are praying that we would be a part of that work of his kingdom come, that we would want to be a part of the advancement of his kingdom. So, we see, when we think about the kingdom, especially in the New Testament, there's, there's a little bit of um, mystery as we talk about the kingdom. Because this is, how, this is how the New Testament talks about his kingdom. He says, your kingdom come. But we also see in chapter 3 of this very book, in Matthew, chapter 3, verse 2, uh, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, if, he, if he's saying, your kingdom come... And John the Baptist is saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, is it here or is it coming? Which one is it? And it's an already not yet. We live in this mystery continually where the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's also coming. And so that's how we have to pray. That's what we have to think about. So as we pray for your kingdom come, we realize that its kingdom has come, but not in its fulfillment yet because the second coming hasn't come. The second coming of Christ where he comes and sets up um, his, his final kingdom hasn't happened yet. So in order for that to come, that second coming, Matthew twenty four fourteen, same book, says this gospel must be preached to all the ethne, all the ethnic groups, all the, all the world, and then the end will come. And so we know that we have to work for the advancement of the kingdom, namely by taking the gospel to all the ethne, all the ethnic groups, all the people groups, that's why we um, every other week pray for a people group, because we know that whenever all people groups are reached, then we're reaching the final fulfillment of all things. And so in order for that to happen, we have to work for the advancement of it. So we have to be the kind of people that want to just not reach our city, not just our state or nation, but all the nations. Um, and so as we pray for his kingdom to come, uh, it's huge for us to realize if we're going to pray your kingdom come. We want that to happen, God. We can't say, your kingdom come, but be passive in its coming and just hoping that all the other Christians are going to take care of that for us. If you're going to pray, your kingdom come, you also must pray, and I have to be an active agent in that happening. Not a passive, just kind of standing on the side, hoping all the Christians go take care of getting the world saved for me. We have to realize that as we pray this, your kingdom come, that we're going to work for the advancement of it. We're going to work for the advancement of it. Um, let, me, let me highlight this or illustrate this with another story in the book 
um, in the book of Luke. This is Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Um, this is really hope, hoping, I'm hoping that this little parable that Christ uh, is teaching is going to show us the importance of everyone that is a believer working for the advancement of the kingdom. Not being passive agents, but active agents in that. And this, this, this is a very, very challenging parable to highlight that hopefully um, if you're not active and you are passive, this will bring some conviction, gentle conviction. The Holy Spirit's very kind in the way he, he leads us to repentance. Um, and for those of you that are, this will give you some encouragement. Look at this in Luke 19. This is verse 11. He heard these things, um, and as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, which is where the final kingdom will happen, um, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they, they were like, the kingdom's coming. It's supposed to happen. And he's like, well, I'm near Jerusalem. Let me tell you a little parable about the kingdom and, and how it's going to happen. And he says this, um, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 Ten minas, and said to them, "Engage in business until I come." Side story or side little thing. This is a huge text for us as Christians to not just kind of uh, not be a part of the commerce of the world. We are to engage in business. We need people in ministry, but we also need people in business that will be great Christians in business. And he says, "Engage in business until I come." I know it's a parable, but it's a clear teaching that that's something that we as Christians should be doing. All right, back to it. It says, "But his citizens." Now, this citizens more than likely is talking about the Jews at the time. So you can realize they're hearing this and they're saying, "Okay, I'm part of this, but, but what am, am I really part?" Of? So he says, and, "But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us.'" And then this is this little verse is kind of uh, the second coming of Christ. And he returned having received the kingdom. There's no question that this is going to happen. This is a reality. The second kingdom will happen. And this is what happens. And he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Um, And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you have authority over ten cities. In other words, this person was given, as a believer, the task to carry out the gospel to the nations. And he worked for that. And when Christ came back, he saw that this servant was found faithful with the gospel and telling people about Jesus. And he tells him, well done. That's exactly what I wanted. Now, notice that this guy was given 10 and the next guy was given 5, which means some of you are given giftedness to have um, lots of reaping. You will see the white fields harvested more than others. And some of you are gifted to five. And you will even see that some of you are gifted to one. Whatever you're gifted is how you're supposed to use that in order to see that the gospel reach the nations. All right. Verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your, your mina, um, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, now notice this is, I'm speaking to the passive people that don't engage in any kind of forms of evangelism, who don't, if they're going to say your kingdom come, just kind of stand on the side and say, and go get it Christians while I hang out. He says this, 
you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. Uh, and they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from whom who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We, we can see in this text that there is an absolute imperative as those who are Christians to work for the advancement of the kingdom. So as we pray, as we pray for his kingdom to come, we must be consigning ourselves into saying, yes, not only do I want the kingdom to come, but I will do everything in my giftedness and my abilities to work for the advancement of it. I'm not going to stand on the side passively and keep my mouth shut as people are walking down the pathway to hell and just kind of watch that go. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to jump in the road and I'm going to save as many as I can. Jesus will, I know, but you know what I mean. Um, so, we must pray for the continual advancement of God's kingdom. Alright, so that's the third one. So as we're praying, we're recognizing God's holiness and His intimacy with us. And then we're saying, we want to be active agents in your gospel going to, to all the kingdom. We want to do that. So this is how we pray. And then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done, now notice that last phrase is key, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Alright, so here's the fourth one. Here's the fourth element in prayers. We pray for His revealed will to come to pass. We pray for His revealed will to come to pass. On earth as it is in heaven. We know in heaven, God's will is always done. And so we're praying that on earth, His revealed will would always happen like it does in heaven. His revealed will. And His revealed will is the things that He's told us in accordance with the Scriptures. The things that He's told us. I'm going to unpack that in a second, but I want, I want you to understand that that's what we're talking about. So, if we pray, and this is very much like the third one, if we pray for His will to be done, then this is our pledge that we will do His will. This is our, if we say, Your will be done, this is just like the other one, then we are pledging that we will do His will. Now, this doesn't just encompass um, evangelism, but this encompasses all other kinds of aspects of life. Pursuit of holiness, um, constantly being in prayer, desiring and pursuing after being filled with the Spirit, like Ephesians 5.18 says. So if we're saying, we want your will to be done, then we're also praying that we are not going to be lazy, we are not going to be unresponsive or uncaring, but we will not, and we will not make excuses. We will pursue your will in our life. Um, so we're promising that we will do His will if we're, pray, if we're praying that, God, we want your will to be done. Now, how do we know the Lord's will? How do we know what the Lord's will is? Um, John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace. Um, I have the right guy. He said this. He, how do we know the Lord's will? This is what he said. He guides and directs his people by affording them in answer to prayer the light of his Holy Spirit. So he gives us the Holy Spirit, basically what he's saying, which enables them to understand and to love the Scriptures. That is really, really key. How do we know the Lord's will? 
Because God has given you the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit gives you the ability as you read the scriptures to understand them and to love them. The way you know the Lord's will is the scriptures. That's his, his, he has revealed his will to us in the scriptures. All right, so then he says, the word of God is not to be used as a lottery. It is not designed to instruct us by shreds and scraps, which detach from their proper places, have no determinate import, but it is to furnish us with just principles, right apprehensions, to regulate our judgments and affections. That's what the scriptures does. It regulates our thoughts, it regulates our, our judgments, and it regulates our emotions and our affections. That's what the power behind the scriptures is. And he says, and thereby influence and direct our conduct. That's what the scriptures do. Um, Andrew Murray, whenever he was speaking on this text, uh, talking about prayer, he said this. Andrew Murray writes, The great mistake here is that God's children do not really believe that it is possible to know God's will. Or if they believe this, they do not take the time and trouble to find it out. What we need... Need is to clearly see in what way it is that the father leads his waiting, teachable child to know that his petition is according to his will. And here it is. How can you know, God, I want to do your will. How can you know? It is here. It is through God's holy word taken up and kept in the heart. So as we're praying for, Lord, we want your will to come. Lord, we want your will to come. We have to acknowledge this as his children. If we want the will of God to happen in our lives, we have to realize that we have to be people who are very much acquainted with in the scriptures. This is the way he speaks to us is through his scriptures. They're infallible and they're inerrant, but they're also sufficient. They're sufficient. They are all you need for life and godliness. So, as we say, your, your will be done, we're, we're, we're recognizing our absolute need to say we have to have the Scriptures in our life and that we're going to pursue the Scriptures. Um, this is James Boyce. He says this, Jesus phrased this prayer as he did to teach us that we are to live and pray so much in the sphere of God's name, God's kingdom, and God's glory that we may be bold in saying, Thy will be done. We can be so bold to say, we want your will to be done, God, because our life is so living in his name, his kingdom, and his glory. And that's through the scriptures. So that's the fourth element is this, is that whenever we pray, your will be done, we are also saying, I want to be a part of that will. And I recognize that the way I'm going to do that most effectively, most efficiently in my life is being in your word. How do I know the will of God in my life? I'm in the scriptures. And that's how I can pray your will be done. Because as I'm reading your scriptures, you're going to give me, by the power of the Spirit, to love and understand them and, and live in light of them more often. So that's, that's the fourth one. So a little slight review. Our Father. We're highlighting the intimacy we have with God. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Highlighting His holiness, but also our sinfulness, recognizing our dependence. And then after that, we're saying, Your kingdom come. Which we're saying... We haven't even addressed ourselves yet, right? We're saying, God, we want people to be saved in this world. And by saying I want that, I'm saying I'm going to be a part of it. And then we say, your will be done. Which is saying, yes, I want your will to be done. Which means I, 
I must be a part of that. I'm saying, yes, I will do your will. And by, by knowing your will the best, I have to be in the Word. I have to be in the Word. That's where we are so far. Now, we finally moved into the section of us. We finally moved into the section of us. So in your prayers, in your prayers, and I'm not governing the amount of length of your prayer that it must be, but in your prayers, it's good habit. It just seems to be the teaching of Christ that we would start with these kinds of things where we talk about God and we talk about our dependence on Him and we talk about His kingdom coming and His will being done and our consignment into His Word before we go into... And there's definite room for us to actually talk about ourselves. And here we are. Um, and this, <laughs> this fifth one is amazing. I love the fifth one. I love it. All right. Give us this day... Our daily bread. Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if we look at that at first, we can say, well, the fifth thing is we ask Jesus for food. That's what we do. Fifth thing is, God, give me some food today. Um, but I think there's, there's a little bit more greater to it. All right? So let's, let's look at I'm, This is how I'm going to phrase the fifth one. And I'm just going to kind of make it a little more broad. Um, we make petitions or make requests, I'm sorry, for our daily corporate petitions. Make requests for our daily, and notice I said corporate petitions. Remember that this entire prayer is in first person plural, not first person singular. Notice what it says. Give us this day, give us this day our daily bread. I'm not saying that Christ is prohibiting um, individualistic prayer. I'm not saying that. Of course, there's times and, and places for you to pray. You have a need. But just remember, the 21st century is what has made us so individualistic. Um, here, community was definitely lived out. And when we talk about food and, and, and bread especially, um, there was an absolute dependence upon the community for all things, not just food, but everything. So... Um, there's a lot here. There's a lot in verse 11. So, give us this day, our daily bread. We're making requests for corporate petitions. So let's look at verse 11. First, this day. This is the day we're living in. This is the day we're dependent upon Christ. This is the day. We're not living in tomorrow yet. We're, pr we're living in this day, so we're praying for this day. And if we, if we were to pray for tomorrow, then maybe we wouldn't even need to feel the, pr the need to pray for tomorrow. Right? So, Again, helping us see our absolute daily need for Him in prayer as well. Give us this day. So then tomorrow we'll pray for, give us this day. And then the next day, then we'll pray for, give us this day. You need to be in, in prayer with Him every day. Give us this day. He wants us to come to Him daily and, and pray to Him. Not every so often, just to kind of catch up for the last month and advance ourselves in prayer for the next month and then see you in a couple. That's not, that's not the idea. Give us this day, our daily bread. Now, this might be difficult for us to understand because in the 21st century, we have retirements, we plan ahead, we know where we're going, we know what we're going to be eating for days ahead, um, weeks ahead. D.A. Carson says, our wealth has contributed to our thanklessness and to our spiritual bankruptcy um, because we live in such a different way than they did then. We have so much wealth. Um, we, can, we can plan... Uh, we bought a thing on the internet, which is like plan the next 90 days of your food or something like that. Like you can just, we can do that now, right? Um, 15 bucks, you can plan like three months of food. Um, and this verse is 
requesting, it's not connecting with 21st century. He's saying, give us this day our daily bread. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether we eat or whether we drink, do all things to the glory of God. Whether we eat or whether we drink. So we're, we're, we're coming into this saying, we need food today. And the most small things. He's saying, give us this day our daily bread. There are so many tasks and so many things you do throughout the day, right? And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, I'm going to, Paul's thinking, I'm going to pick the most daily, mundane, menial task and say, that must be done to the glory of God. Eating and drinking. So as I pick up a sandwich and have some water, I'm supposed to do this that I'm going to do in another six hours and then another six hours, I'm supposed to do this to the glory of God. This is such a small thing. And so if I'm supposed to do this small thing to the absolute glory of God, or well, as the things I do gain in importance, well, of course those things are supposed to be done to the glory of God. And here we're saying, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread, not daily food. He doesn't say daily food. He says bread. He chooses the word Bread which is awesome. Why? Lots of reasons. Number one, um, bread was the staple back then. This was, this was what they ate. Um, I heard one commentator said, bread, life revolved around the making of bread in this society. Bread was not only the plate, it was also the utensil. Bread was everything. So give us this day our daily bread. It had to be made every day. If it's going to be good, it's got to be made every day, right? So it had to be made every single day. Um, it was absolutely essential. And here's a quote. It says, We realize our absolute need for everything only comes from God. We realize this because he's saying, Give us our daily bread. Now, um, hopefully we're all catching the double meaning. If you remember in Matthew 4, the temptations. Um, let me just kind of show you really fast in 4.4. 4. Um, it says in 4.4, 4, in 3, the tempter says, Turn these stones into bread. And 4.4 4 says, but he answered them, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So now we're starting to see, when we say, give us this day our daily bread, they're using the word bread on purpose, we're all of a sudden catching this double meaning that Christ is saying. Yes, we need sustenance, we need physical food to stay alive, but also, oh, we need the bread of life. We need Christ. So let me show you that in John 6. Let me just read John 6.35 to you. He says this. This is um, a pretty famous te text where Christ calls himself the bread of life. John 6.35 says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So we're catching this already here, that as we say, um, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying, yes, sustenance for physical life, not just with food, but all of our petitions, all of our corporate and individualistic petitions, we're saying we need that, but we're also saying that we, that we need God himself. We need our daily bread. We need the bread of life daily in our life. We need Christ, his gospel, and, and him and his forgiveness every single day. Um, Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson says this, this is awesome. If all, if we have all the food in the world, but no Christ, we will ultimately starve. 
if we have food with Christ, we shall have all we ever need because we need both. We daily pray, give us today our daily bread so that we have, yes, food for life, but we have Jesus. We need that. So that's the, that's the fifth one, whatever it is, fifth one. Um, give us this day our daily bread. So as we pray this, we're saying, um, and this is how your prayers would look. We're saying, Lord, I have needs. My family has needs. We have these things in our life. Now, you'll notice that this is our, um, this is our only laundry list of needs. Verse 11. There's going to be some other things that are, that are needs, but they're, they're not necessarily, these are all my things I have to have in my life right now, Jesus. Verse 11. And he even connects the laundry list where we say, God, I got bills. God, I got, you know, we don't have any air conditioning here. Um, like we have all these things that we need, Father. Um, he's even taking that time where it's so much about us and saying, you also need the bread of life. You also need the bread of life. All right. That's how you would pray. Lord, I have individualistic needs. I have things that are going on. But all, above all those things, I need you. I need you, Christ. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I know that uh, if you grew up um, like I did in, in you know, tr- pretty traditional kind of Baptist church, um, we always use the word trespass. Um, but in the, in the original, it is the word debt. It is the word debt. It's... it's, it's um, it's not trespass, which is sin, but that's not wrong. But the word is debt because it's um, wanting to carry the idea of owing something to someone. It's wanting to carry the idea of owing something to someone. Um, and so this debt that it says is sin debt, though. So that's why trespass is correct. But there is an owing um, that's, that's supposed to be highlighted in here. So we're asking for forgiveness and we're also asking for help to extend it. So here's the sixth element in prayer. When we say forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the sixth element. We ask for forgiveness of sin and help to extend forgiveness to others. We ask for forgiveness of sin and help to extend forgiveness to others. Now, Martin Luther says, um, all of life is one of repentance. So we, we should continually ask for forgiveness of sin. We should continually repent from sin. Um, this is not a, a re-justification, if you will. This isn't a, I got to get saved all again and ask for forgiveness. So this time it really means, and then, you know, next day, whenever I send, send it up again, I'm going to ask for forgiveness again because I need to be forgiven again. So we're not talking about a, a re-justification or a re-declaration. Okay, now you're really righteous this time. Oh, now you're, re- that's not what we're saying. It's now in sanctification, after we've been declared holy and righteous by God, now in the process of sanctification, we have ongoing sin in our life where we recognize, as Luther says, all of life is one of repentance. We recognize our sin, and then we say, Lord, this is, this is a sin that I want to repent of and turn from, and by your Spirit, conquer in my life, put to death in my life, and then continually move on. And as you, um, I think as Edwards said, um, as you kind of, sanctif- think of sanctification this way, because you're never going to not be sinful, all right? You're never going to not be sinful. Edward says this, he, he, he pictures it as a mountain. Um, and then as you're walking up the mountain, there's kind of a cloud cover right there. And you're seeing, wow, these are the sins that I have going on. And then you, you get up the mountains and you finally get above the clouds. And then as you get above the clouds, you feel like that sin's gone. And then you look up and you see a whole other set of clouds. And you're like, oh, I didn't even know I had that sin in my life. These sins were going on. But as I got up here, um, I see 
because I've grown in sanctification that I have more sin in my life. And now there's more work to do. But he also connects that with the majesty and glory of God. You can see certain levels of glory of God. And then as you get up above that, you think you've seen all there is to know of the vastness of the beauty of God. You look up and then there's more vastness and beauty of God. So there's a never-ending beauty of beholding of Christ. So anyway, I don't even know how I got to that. That wasn't in my notes. Um, so let me, let me explain this also. This, this verse 12 um, is not like a little arrangement. We're not like making a kind of a little side mafia deal. You do a thing for me, God, I do a thing for you. It's not like one of those kind of things where we're saying, if I promise to forgive everybody, God, then you're going to forgive me, right? Um, it's about, it's not like I promise to forgive other people um, if you're going to forgive my debts. When it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's not that. It's about our hearts being so overwhelmed with the love and the forgiveness of Christ that has been extended to us in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to extend that forgiveness to other people in order to point them back to Jesus. In order to point them back to Jesus. Not just kind of feel absolved from, you know, guilt from us. In order to point them back to Jesus. So let me illustrate this in the same book in Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Um, I'm in verse 23. I'm in verse 23. This is um, highlighting for us the kind of forgiving people that we're supposed to be. Um, and, and in 23, Christ is tearing, telling a story, telling a parable. Um, and I'm in 23. And if you'll notice, 22 is the very popular verse about forgiveness. Verse 22 says, um, I say to you seven times, uh, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, speaking of how many times you're supposed to forgive. And he doesn't just mean like 490. Um, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is verse 23. This is telling us about forgiveness and what it's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents, a lot. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant, of course, didn't like that sound. So he came, the servant fell on his knees and implored the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him all the debt. That's pretty awesome. Verse 28, and when the servant went out, he found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, we don't, we're not really, you know, familiar with 10,000 talents and a hundred denarii, but that's lower. That's a lot lower than the debt that was just kind of forgiven for him. A much lower thing. Now, remember, the king just forgave him a huge debt. What is he going to do whenever there's somebody else that owes him a lower amount? Look what happens. Um, Verse 28, and he came to a servant and he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And his servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Same thing, right? Look at this. He refused and he went out and put him in prison, which you could do in the day. If someone owed you, you could put him in prison. Um, that he should pay back the debt, which you can't really make a lot of money in prison, so he'll probably spend the rest of his life in prison now. Um, and when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they, you know what, we're going to go back and tell the main king, right? They went back and they told the master what had taken place. Verse 32, and his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and you should, and, and should not, have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay back his debt. 
35, summation, here we go. So also my heavenly Father will not do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we're praying that we want to not, as we've been extended forgiveness and that we would repent of sin, that we would be able to extend this forgiveness to other people as well. So as Christ has forgiven you, your 10,000 talents, your massive sin debt, you also don't choke people, quote unquote, but you extend that forgiveness to other people because the sin in which they've done to you is in no measurement to the sin in which you and I have done to God. So we always extend forgiveness to people. Now listen, let me just get really practical with you. Um, because we can all say, yeah, that's right, I can do that. But it can be difficult when a spouse sins against another spouse. And we don't just mean like, you know, didn't do the dishes when they ask them to. But a real deep pain. A real heart-wrenching, adulterous relationship. These kinds of things. And those things are deep and painful. They're more difficult to forgive than we can ever imagine. But, the teaching of this parable is clear. The sin that we've done against God is worse than that. I'm not trying to minimize or discount the pain that it might be for you to, to extend forgiveness to someone who's wronged you deeply, especially the closer they are to you. I know that that's painful. I know that that's very, very difficult. But you will only be able to do it as you revel in the forgiveness of the gospel that's been extended to you. And by the power of the Spirit in you, will you be able to extend it. So we must find ourselves actively thinking on and meditating on and appreciating the gospel that's been extended to us. So if, God forbid, something like that happened, we are much more in a place to, though painful, though with tears, extend this forgiveness to other people. I don't want to just kind of live up in, in la-la land and act like these are just things we're supposed to do. I know that th- some of these things are hard. And so, while they're hard, know that you have the Spirit of Christ in you if you're a Christian to be able to extend it. And you have, just like I have, experienced the greatest sense of forgiveness in the gospel. And you can, you can extend forgiveness to those that have wronged you deeply. Last one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's the seventh one. Plead for help not to sin. Don't miss the corporate nature of this. Don't miss the corporate nature. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There, there are sins that we must repent of corporately as well as individually. I think of Psalm 19.14 um, or 13 where he says, Keep your servant from willful or presumptuous sin. May they not rule over me. I pray that so often. God, I don't want to willfully sin. Keep me from willful, presumptuous, premeditated. There's the sin. I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. 
I mean, we're far more sinful than we could ever imagine. We sin sometimes without even knowing it. But a lot of times we sin knowing. Just planned out, disobedient, willful, in your face, I don't care sin. And we, don't, we shouldn't want that in our life. Now, there's a little thing here that kind of uh, made me feel a little strange in, in verse 13. I've always kind of struggled with it. Where it says, lead us not into temptation. Like, is God leading me into temptation? Is that really what I'm asking Him not to do? Is that, is that like the heart of God? I just want to lead you into temptation. Unless you ask me. If you ask me, then okay, I'll stop. Shouldn't it say like, keep me away from temptation instead of lead? It's kind of, you know, the sense of holding back, but it makes it sound like kind of a nudge on the back rather than holding you away. Um, it always makes me feel like God is pondering the thought of kind of leading me in and I'm asking Him to please change your mind, God. Um, D.A. Carson says this, and you know, the original text wasn't written with commas, okay? The original text wasn't written with commas, but I think this makes pretty good sense. Um, after the word us, put a comma. And lead us. Lead us. God, would you lead us? Not to temptation, but away from it. Into righteousness, into situations where we're far from being tempted, but will be protected and therefore kept righteous. That's what Carson says. I think that's really awesome. We're pleading with God to lead us. Please, God, lead me. I, I can't do this. This life is impossible. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible unless your spirit come now and lead me. We can hear some texts. I just want to read you some texts where we, we hear people saying what we want to be led in righteousness or we have a life of righteousness. This is Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 3.16. Only let us hold true to what we've already attained. Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of the Lord. Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These are the kinds of thoughts that we hear. These are the kinds of things that we're thinking about when we say, lead us, God. Lead me. Lead me into righteousness. Keep me away from temptation. Sinclair Ferguson says, The Christian who does not know his weaknesses... You're weak. I'm weak. We're very weak. And we need to pray for those weaknesses. But we need to know them to pray for them. The Christian who does not know his weakness can therefore neither pray this prayer, the model prayer, nor experience God's strength. The Christian who knows his weakness but is a praying Christian will be garrisoned by the Lord. No wonder the ancient church added its own doxology to the Lord's Prayer, which is your kingdom and your power, yours be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's, a, it's an absolute declaration of utter dependence on God. So you'll notice 
in the second section where it's about us, where we have real petitions, that we are still, in almost every sense, declaring our need for Christ, declaring our, him, our need for Him to lead us, declaring our absolute understanding of needing to repent from sin and live in the gospel. The, the model prayer is thoroughly God-centered. Thoroughly God-centered. Are your prayers thoroughly God-centered or self-centered? The model, the model is that our hearts and, and minds would be so in tune and connected and desirous of the Lord and Him in our life and His will being done that our petitions our requests would be the things that match that. Not match our personal agenda. That's what we're praying. And, and maybe that's why your prayers have no vitality. Because I'm going to tell you, it's boring to pray about yourself only. It's going to get old. But it's not ever going to get old as you walk up the mountain to talk about and pray for God's will to be done and the gloriousness and the beauty of God. He is the infinite. He never runs out of anything. That's why maybe, because you're, you and I are finite, your prayers have no vitality. You rarely pray. It's because, and I'm guilty of it as well, maybe our prayers are so self-centered and not so God-centered. The clear implications here in this prayer is that we would pray and ask for things, yes. However, we would approach God daily, not with our needs only, but we would acknowledge who He is, our Father. But He's also holy, and we have to have Him in our life, our utter dependence that He provides everything to us in order for us to take everything He gives and return it back to Him as worship. Romans eleven thirty six: By Him, for Him, and through Him are all things. And His will is more important than ours. And everything is dependent upon Him. And so I just want to challenge you in your prayer life that it would look like this. And our, my prayer life and all of our prayer lives would be thoroughly God-centered, like the model prayer. Let's stand and pray together the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll go into our time of response. And... However the Lord's pushing it on you now, just respond with that. If, if you need to pray, pray. If you need to read the Scriptures, read the Scriptures. If you just want to stand and sing out to the beauty of Christ, then do that. Sing out to Christ because of His beauty. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.